Find Esther chapter 2. Esther 2. God can use anything, even a beauty pageant. God can use anything, even a beauty pageant. That's tonight's topic. Esther chapter 2. As we continue our journey through the book of Esther. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the capital under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away... Uh, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of uh, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, 
who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. You know, Romans 8.28 tells us that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are the called according to his purpose. As I've mentioned to you many times before, that certainly does not mean that everything is good because there's sin and evil at work in the world. But it says that God is able to work good in all things, even bad things. God can use anything, even a beauty pageant. Scholars tell us that as we begin chapter 2, four years have passed between chapters 1 and 2. And that's why verse 1 says, after these things. Now, going back to chapter 1 a moment, what's some of the things that have happened back in chapter 1 that you remember from last week? Anybody? Big party, okay? And what happened at that party? They what? They drank a lot and wanted Vasti to show up in, in front of them. And, uh, of course, the, uh, an ancient Jewish rabbinical source says that what they were demanding was for her to come before them with nothing on. Uh, according to that uh, Jewish rabbinical tradition, the men were sitting around debating on uh, women all over the Persian Empire and some men were saying all the women in our region are the most beautiful and others are no, our region has the most beautiful and uh, the king said no, nobody's as pretty as Vasti and let her be brought and she refused. Now, uh, after that happened, they issued the decree 
that she had to be put aside as queen. Because when all the wives heard what Vashti had done, they would get courage that they too would rebel against their husbands and there would be chaos all over the empire because none of the women would be listening to their husbands. So that's what they did. Now, by the way, let me mention something to you. I know we, we have trouble believing this tradition. We certainly wouldn't do it, I hope, but... The Persians, it is said that the Persians, when they would gather together to make major decisions, they would purposely get drunk to make the decisions. They believed that through drinking and becoming inebriated, somehow or another you got more in touch with whatever supernatural gods they believed might be out there, and their insight would actually be greater And then by the next day, if by the next day they still agreed with the decisions they'd made when they were drunk, then they would proceed and go ahead with the plans. So anyway, that's what's happened. They have made the decree that Vashti is out. Now, the last part of chapter 1 verse 19 has never been carried out. Vashti has been put out, but another has not taken her place. The king has a harem, but the king has no wife. Well, what has happened in these four years that have taken place between chapters 1 and 2? Again, scholars and historians tell us that Xerxes has gone to battle, has led the Persians into battle against the Greeks. Remember, that's probably why we said he was having the big party in chapter 1. And he's rotating in and out all of his leaders because he's trying to, uh, to have this pep rally here to get everybody feeling good about the Persian Empire and, and the strength of the Persians getting ready to take them to war. Well, he went to war. And it didn't work out so good for the Persians. They were defeated and humiliated by the Greeks. And so Xerxes has gone back to Susa, a defeated man. Now the ancient historian Herodotus tells us that the king's life after this military defeat became one of sensual overindulgence. He even dallied with the wives of some of his key officers, sowing an anger that ended up leading to his assassination in 465 B.C. Well, many feel like as chapter 2 opens, what we are faced with is a depressed king. Things have not worked out according to his plans. And you know, that's the way life can be sometimes, isn't it? Life doesn't always go according to our plans. And folks, if we don't know the Lord, the ups and downs of life can really get to us, can't they? We can coast on the highs and despair on the lows. If you don't know the Lord, you fail to see how He is even able to work His purposes in the midst of the lows. 
We see here that while the earthly king has failed, the sovereign king has not failed. And though we don't see it yet, God is already at work to get Esther moved into place. But here's the king, he's depressed. Now we're told that his anger has subsided. Now, supposedly, what we're being told here is that his anger against Vashti has subsided. It's not that he's necessarily been brooding over her for four years. It's just a statement of fact that helps us to switch gears and get ready for the next scene. But it also may be a reference to the fact that his anger over being defeated by the Greeks has subsided. Well, at any rate... His anger's gone. His anger had caused him to do a very foolish thing. He had acted hastily in getting rid of Vasti, and he'd acted hastily in attacking the Greeks. And now he's a lonely man. But again, we see God working. If chapter 1 was about getting Vasti out of her role, chapter 2 is about God getting Esther into her role so that she'll be in the right place at the right time so that her people can be spared. Folks, God is the conductor. Amen? God is the conductor of life and of history. God's in charge. History is His story. Now, in the first point I want to make, I, I, I want to look at events simply from the standpoint of the ungodly king, Xerxes. And the first point is this. Decisions made apart from God's guidance can leave us empty and in despair. Decisions made apart from God's guidance can leave us empty and in despair. And that's where we find Xerxes. You know, it is no wonder that the Bible tells us several times in several different places that we need to seek wisdom from God. Amen? God knows tomorrow. We don't. God sees tomorrow. We don't. You know, there's so much grief in life that we could prevent ourselves from going through if we would do a little bit better job seeking God's wisdom. Here's a king who's made a mess out of a whole lot of things in his life. He's a man who has been living as the captain of his own ship, and his ship is sinking. You almost feel a little bit sorry for him. He's lost his wife because of a foolish thing that he did while he was drunk. And now he's lost a war. He begins thinking of Vasti. Now, apparently, he's, he's been so caught up in the affairs of his kingdom that, that he hasn't given much thought to, to Vasti. Now, lest that seems odd to you, remember that the Persian kings were known for their harems. 
and their parties, and they were known for their immorality. He has not been without companionship, even if the companionship was immoral. But he's had lots of company, the company of women. But he's taken stock over his life, and he's missing his wife. Now, that's the beauty of marriage, isn't it? Because Genesis 1 tells us that the two become one. A man leaves his father and mother, unites together with his wife in a building of a home, and the two become one. There is a companionship in marriage that, yes, while it includes physical intimacy, it includes a whole lot more than that. There's no friend quite like the friend of a loving spouse. Well, the king has a harem. He can have any woman he wants. But again, he's missing his wife. He's empty. He's lonely. He's defeated. Now again, he's gotten himself here in this situation. Bad choices. Not knowing God and not seeking God in his life. And not seeking God's wisdom. He's sown to the wind and he's reaping the whirlwind, as the prophet Hosea says. I wonder if I could be talking to somebody like that here tonight. That in your choices in life, you've not really sought the Lord. Maybe your life's in a mess. Maybe your life has been a tragic set of circumstances one after another because you've jumped into things without seeking God's guidance and God's favor. There's consequences, aren't there? God forgives, but there's consequences to living apart from God. And Xerxes is experiencing that. Well, secondly, I want you to see tonight the presence of self-serving plans. The presence of self-serving plans. And I want to mention specifically verses 2, 3, and 4. The king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the capital under custody of Haggai the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. The king's attendants come up with this plan. Now, I happen to believe there was a little bit of self-preservation and self-serving in this plan that the attendants came up with. Can you venture a guess why I would say that? We know that the Persian kings would offer edicts that they couldn't undo. But they were famous for turning around and issuing another edict that would undo the one that they just issued. So he's issued the edict to put Vasti out. But guess what he could do? 
He could publish an edict to get Vashti back in. And what's the old saying? There ain't no anger like a woman scorned. Right? If Vashti knows that she was put out because these advisors had counseled him to put her out and she gets back in, then it's curtains for them. They probably want to see anybody but Vasti get back in. And so they concoct a scheme. And so I, I see a lot of self-preservation in what they're doing. But you know, here again, that's how life is when you don't follow God's plan to begin with. Just like the king made bad decisions, they'd made bad decisions. And here they are having to come up with plans to make sure their previous plan is held intact. Isn't that what people have to do a lot of times? They have to come up with one scheme to cover another scheme. So here's their plan. They want the king to have overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Uh, Chapter 1 told us there were 127 provinces. And these overseers have one main job. And that one main job that these overseers are going to have is to gather together all the beautiful young virgins together in one place at Susa. Now, some scholars point out what a sad day this would have been all across Persia. Because some of the women, some of them would have been willing participants. But many of them wouldn't have been. Many of them would have been stripped away from their families and their dreams of having a husband and having children of their own. And now they've lost all that. And by the way, with this many young virgins being gathered from all over the kingdom, 127 provinces, guess what? Your odds of becoming the queen are pretty low, aren't they? But if you don't become the queen, it's not that you get to go back home. You don't. You are consigned to being a part of the king's harem of concubines. And so again, uh, most of these young women would have been stripped away for good from their families. The plan is they're going to be pampered for a whole year. Verse 3 says cosmetics were given to them. Verse 12 includes other preparations. This is going to be a beauty pageant where the stakes were higher than anything that we can relate to. Well, the third thing I want you to see, God's favor extended to one. God's favor extended to one, verses 5 through 9. The king is going to be after the young virgin that he favors the most. But folks, before the king's choice comes whose choice? God's choice. God's choice. 
Now, we see this whole scenario being set up here in verse 5. It says, Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther. So we're introduced to Mordecai for the first time. We're told a little bit about his genealogy. We're told about his cousin Esther for the first time. And we're told about her beauty. That she was beautiful in form and appearance. She was a knockout. Had a gorgeous figure and a gorgeous face. She was a knockout. Here again, rabbinic tradition said that Esther was one of the four most beautiful women in the whole entire world at that time. So it comes as no surprise in this mandated beauty contest that she becomes part of it. Now, despite all that is going to transpire that God tells his people not to be a part of, you can still see the finger of God writing this script. Because God knows His people are in danger. You know, God even uses sinful people and sinful ways to execute His plans. Now folks, that does not mean that God is the author of sin. He's not. Don't ever say that. James 1 points out that God is never the author of sin because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anybody with evil. God is not the author of sin. But without God being the author of sin, God has his chosen woman in place for the salvation of her people. Verse 9 tells us how Esther pleased the man who was over the ladies, Haggai. Now, no doubt God saw it. God saw to it that Haggai took a special liking to Esther. I personally believe that Esther was as beautiful a person on the inside as she was on the outside. There's something about her that captivated Haggai. It's God at work. Even in verse 10, I see God at work. Verse 10 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. God's at work. Now, we would never agree with what happened in verses 12 to 14. Apparently, because of the way that verse 14 says that each woman would return to the second harem in the morning, this time it would be the harem of the concubines. Well, we can only guess. What happened during the night, right? If she went into the king at night and went out the next morning from the king 
and then went to a different harem, this time not the harem of the virgins, but the harem of the concubines, we can only guess what happened, right, during the night. I think just, this just goes to show how real the Bible is. The Bible doesn't record the best in people. People are messy. If you think the Bible only records the lives of the perfect, then you'd be disappointed. There's Noah who got drunk. There's Abraham who lied. There's Moses who tried time and time again to get out of serving God. There was Rahab who had been a prostitute. There's Simon Peter who must have been a hothead. So again, the Bible is not filled with perfect people. There's only one perfect person, Jesus. But at any rate, verse 17 tells us that the king chose Esther. So she's part of a harem. Harem of virgins goes in probably, again, I'm just guessing it. The text reads like, she would have been subjected to a night of immorality with the king. The women not chosen would go the next morning to the, to the harem of the concubines. But she was chosen. God even using bad things and sinful things to spare his people, right? There's a larger plan at work here. Again, God's not the author of sin, but God used all of these events to spare his people, to spare their annihilation. Now, by the way, unless you don't see yourself in this picture, Remember what they were to do, they were to, what Haman's plan was going to be later on was to destroy all of the Jews over everywhere that the Persians ruled. All of the Jews. Now folks, had all of them been destroyed, what would that have meant? I heard, what was it? No, Jesus. Had all the Jews been wiped out, How about the line that Christ would come through? No Jesus, no salvation. So you see, this story may have a little more application to you today than you realize. God working to save his people through whom the Messiah was going to come into the world. Well, he, throw, he picks Esther, he throws a big public party to have her recognize this is Esther's party. Fourth thing I want you to see, God's people are sometimes overlooked. Verses 21 to 23, God's people are sometimes overlooked. Even as Esther was not overlooked, Mordecai was overlooked, at least for now. Sometimes God's people are overlooked. Now, the scene here is as follows. 
The king had two officials that became angry. And these two officials are planning an assassination attempt. Now, by the way, just like I mentioned earlier, Xerxes indeed would be assassinated in 465 B.C. But these guys here are, are planning to assassinate him now. There's some speculation as to why. I think the most obvious reason why they're probably planning to assassinate him is because he's led his nation in a war which the nation lost. That's most obvious. But some writers suggest another plan too. It was the practice of the Persian kings that they would choose a wife to be queen from among seven families of nobility. This was the custom of the Persian kings. Seven families of nobility from which they would find a wife to marry. And this king has stepped outside of that and he's married a foreigner. So these guys might have been traditionalists who were mad at him because he's broken a rule of the Persians and so they're going to kill him. It's possible. I think probably the reason, again, probably the reason they want to assassinate him is because he's led their nation in a war and lost. And they just don't think he's the right leader anymore. In their eyes, he's a failure. And back then, some of the, the kings, I mean, it was common for them to get knocked off, to get assassinated. Well, whatever the reason, the plot becomes known to Mordecai. Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king has it all investigated, finds out it's true. And so he has these two guys killed. Now, here again, folks, we see God having his people in the right place at the right time. But that doesn't mean that God's people all, always get the recognition on the spot that they deserve. Reward may come much later. Mordecai is not rewarded at this time. Mordecai probably felt overlooked, especially as the next chapter opens. We're going to see that Haman gets, promote, gets the promotion, not Mordecai, Haman. Mordecai's probably thinking, I just made sure the king didn't get assassinated. And here he ends up promoting Haman. So he probably feels overlooked. But in time, guess what? He will receive his reward. Folks, the Bible says that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ one day. As a follower of Christ, you may never get the recognition or thanks that you think you deserve. Don't worry about it. God knows. God knows. Right? Live your life to please the Lord. It doesn't matter what people around you think all the time. Live your life to please the Lord. Reward comes from Him one day. 
And guess what? Don't think that you're supposed to have earthly reward necessarily. It may not come. But again, it will one day. Your job and my job is simply to concentrate on being found faithful. And God will take care of the rest. Again, know that God can use whatever He needs to in order to accomplish His purposes. He has put one down and He has raised another up. Vasty is gone, Esther is in. On the surface, it may just look like this is the work of the king and his advisors, but it's not. God is directing all of these human decisions. God is at work. God is proactive in his watch care. He is taking care of a need before they even realize that there's a need. They have no idea as of yet what Haman, the wicked plan Haman is going to be devising against them. But God knows. And so before the plan, before the wicked plan even becomes known to them, God is already working in such a way to frustrate Haman's plans. I'll tell you another case that reminds me of. God wasn't going to call Moses until Moses was how old? 80 years old. But already as a little baby in a basket in the water. God is watching over Moses, right? God's watching over him and protecting him. Because God knows what he's going to do 80 years from now. Same thing here. God is not simply reactive. God is proactive in his watch care over his people. We read the Bible and from page to page we see God's wisdom and sovereignty at work. And we see the fact that man does not frustrate God's plans. God frustrates man's plans. If your plans are not in, not lining up with God's will, guess what? God can frustrate your plans. We need to make sure that our plans are according to the will of God. The only way our plans will stand is if they're in accordance with the will of God. And so there's a great lesson to be learned here in the book of Esther. We need to trust the providence and the sovereignty of God. We need to trust the providence and the sovereignty of God. Christians don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe in fate. We don't believe that things just happen 
King David said in Psalm 139, God even knows all of my days before I live one of them. God doesn't just know my weeks or my months or my years or my decades. God knows all of my days. He has them all numbered before I live even one of them. Amazing. The book of Esther teaches us that God is sovereign and we can trust the providential hand of God. 